Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones, and I am flying solo today on Hardcore Church Planning. And I have with me today, I have two guests, and uh, they are Anglican ministers, and I am so excited to talk to people from the Anglican sector of the church planning world, which uh, we we have not had yet. And so my my guests today are the hosts of the Always Forward podcast, and uh, which is the Anglican Church Planning podcast, and Always Dash Forward dot com is their website. Huge amounts of useful information from both these guys. And uh, this is Sean McCain and Dan Alger. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Peyton. It's good to be, good to be with here. you, man. Yeah. All right. So, guys, um, this is really neat. Let me just, for our listeners who are like, wow, Anglicans, um, you know, you, you've got Anglicans on the podcast here talking about church planning. I have to say, um, you guys are going after it and you are inspiring me right now. Um, how much that, that you're going for it. And here's the deal is the, the Anglicans are growing in America. Surely you can tell me about this a little bit more, but, uh, let me get my history of the Anglicans for those of us in America that, that may not be as familiar. If, if you were in the UK today, you would know the Anglicans. In fact, when I was church planning, uh, I, I was in a Welsh Calvinistic Methodist church. Uh, Martin Lee Jones <laughs> was once upon a time the pastor there, and I got to be the evangelist at that church for a few years. Then I went to a Reformed Baptist church, and then finally I just became this wreck of a whatever and planted a church in a Starbucks um, accidentally. But during that time, I can remember when I planted my first church, uh, everybody in the evangelical world seemed like they were angry. Who, who are you? I got a letter by whose authority? How dare you plan a church? And <laughs> what happened ironically was out of everybody in the entire community. Um, it, and by the way, in this, in my city, uh, there were churches, but, but things are broken up into boroughs and there was no, uh, church in my borough other than an Anglican church. And in other boroughs, the evangelical churches were very down on what I was doing. Even though we, we start accidentally, it started with about 50, uh, non-believers coming, uh, to this reading group and the Starbucks. And it, it just very organically started happening. But the Anglican, uh, minister down the road in my borough reached out his hand, reached out to me and said, Hey, I heard about what's going on. I'd love to meet you. Let's mm. talk. And what I didn't realize at that time was this Anglican guy was used to the kind of treatment I was getting by <laughs> non- Welsh nonconformist ministers, evangelical <laughs> ministers. 
And he he must have heard my name kicked about a bit and thought, you know what? I know what that feels like. I'm going to reach out to this guy and I'm going to befriend him. His name was Alan. He was the the, the minister of a of a an Anglican church in uh, a place called Pentlegare. Uh, mm-hmm. We worked together. Uh, we hosted. Um, you, we we teamed up for youth groups with my first church plant. It was fantastic, and he was such a great guy. Well. The other little bit of hidden history here with Anglicanism and myself, uh, many people don't realize when I got saved, I went, even though these are apples and oranges, I went to an Episcopalian church right after I came to faith. And I am actually a confirmed Episcopalian. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm a closet liturgist. And uh, you wouldn't know it by what I do on the surface. When I urban church plan, I I, I tend to... Uh, uh, it, what I do on the surface doesn't look like what goes on in my soul often. But the reality is I love going to Anglican churches. I love everything about it. I love the liturgy. I love all of that. And the older I get, the more I love it. And so, guys, mm-hmm. it's just a super big honor to have you guys on here. And I can't wait to hear what God's been doing through the Anglican church planning movement. Oh, thanks so much. Well, what a what an introduction. Appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, tell tell us a little bit about what God has been doing. I mean, you know, well, first off, Pete would thump me on the head and say, look, you have to ask them how they came to faith. So let's hear a little bit of each of your journeys, get to know you, and then we'll talk about church planning. Okay. Um, well, this is Dan. I um I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and um, from I was baptized in the Episcopal Church and was confirmed in the Episcopal Church and grew up in the Episcopal Church. And um, when I was in college in the early 2000s was the time when, when a lot of the um, theological and moral divides were really starting to, to come to a head within, within the Episcopal Church. And so uh, it's, a, it's a long and complicated history, but there began to be some divisions and folks that started to leave the Episcopal Church, but wanted to remain faithfully, faithfully Anglican. And so, um, and so I ended up, although I was in the, the process of ordination within the Episcopal Church, leaving and joining, joining what was then called the Anglican Mission in America. And so, so um, and, and then after that, as that fell apart, came into the to the uh, to the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America as well. But so my my sort of conversion experience, I think, really was was a sacramental one. It was one where I uh, where I grew up. The church where I grew up was an evangelical Episcopal church, and so so I was baptized into a, a believing family and grew up knowing the Lord and grew up in His community. And you know, in in our understanding of of salvation and coming to the Lord as well. Our, our liturgy each Sunday calls, we, we say that we, we have an altar call every Sunday because there's the proclamation of the gospel and then the opportunity to, to respond to that proclamation of the gospel through confession and absolution. And then, and then to be able to, to come down front with the with the community of believers to receive the uh, the welcome into uh, into the family as a part of baptism, but then as a part of the as the Lord's Supper as well. And so that's that sort of sacramental reality is what I grew up with. And then when I went to college. I got connected with with Campus Crusade for Christ and learned a lot about evangelism and discipleship through Campus Crusade for Christ. And so 
started to to see the the liturgical sacramental church world and then the uh, and then on the other hand the discipleship evangelism missional part of things as well and uh and uh, and so both of those those passions burned bright within me and and so that's where I decided and and, and pray that listen to the Lord's call in in pursuing a life of ministry within within the Anglican church and so the the political history of of the Episcopal church and then into the into the Anglican church in North America um lined up real close with my life in Christ as well. And so where we are now in, in, I mean, I'm making a really long story short, but where we are right now, we, we have the ability to remain faithfully Anglican, which is sacramental and, and word focused and spirit led, but also to be very focused on the, on the work of mission and church planting. And so it's, it's an exciting time to be a, a, a biblical, faithful, spirit led missional Anglican right now in, in the U S. Very cool, man. And and I want to unpack that a little bit in future. Yeah. But uh, Sean, how about you? Yeah, I grew up, I have a complicated, you know, one of those stories. I grew up in a Methodist church. My dad was a Methodist pastor. Um, man, I had a, a really great um, experience of Jesus in my house, in my family. Never really knew a life apart from the love of God, you know, even before I could articulate it, I knew, I knew that God loved me and that he sent his son. And so there's always this kind of, um, I really inherited the gift of, of faith, I think in some ways from my family and, uh, even beyond my parents, just a really rich, uh, tradition of faith that wasn't just kind of this cultural inheritance, but this active living, vibrant faith and love of Jesus. So my parents really gave me that gift. We grew up in the Methodist church. Um, when I was in high school, I had, I had multiple milestones in my faith where, um, the nearness of God became, um, more and more apparent. It wasn't just some, you know, idea on the shelf, but in fact, God was drawing near and wanted to know me, wanted to know him and had plans, you know, wanted to get to work. So I have those kinds of summer camp, um, experiences with missionaries coming in and realizing, oh man, God wants to invite me into the work that he's already doing. And I uh, thought, man, that's what I want to do with my life. I came out of high school, told my dad, I think I want to be a pastor. My dad, who's a pastor said, no, you don't. Um, if you can do anything else in your life and be happy, go do that. Um, so I did, I went off and um, pursued computer engineering. I worked for HP on a chip team for five years, had the American dream, started having babies and before you know it, um, I mean, the meanwhile, the whole time I'm just involved in youth ministry and ministry this whole time. And um, long story short, what ends up happening is discerning with my wife. Uh, God has other plans for us and we need to run after those plans. So we we left my job. We sold our house and our cars and moved down to Pasadena, went to Fuller Seminary. Um, we love Fuller. And um we just started asking, you know, in seminary questions about what is the church? Is is it really just a gathering of people who have the same idea about Jesus? Uh, or is there something that God is doing despite us and for us that, that brings about like a being into the world, some concreteness that is the church, some sacredness that is the church? And uh, that, you know, obviously when I'm, I'm reading N.T. Wright and John Stott and I mean, my favorites are C.S. Lewis and these guys and didn't had no idea these guys were Anglican um, and just fell into the rabbit hole of that question about what is the nature of the church and, and what is its being in the world? And 
um, started finding answers in folks like Alexander Schmemann, Eastern Orthodox theologian, Michael Ramsey, um, just just those John Zizioulis, another Eastern Orthodox guy, a whole concert of voices that I had not heard before and just began painting a picture of the beauty of the church and not just some sort of museum beauty, but this this thing that um, that had teeth that was actually at work in the world, um, embodied and fleshed and beautiful in the neighborhood. So coming from Fuller, where that is, you know, missional church central in a lot of ways, uh, and then coming, uh, having this journey into the the great tradition, uh, the great Catholic tradition um, of the Anglican Church, uh, like like Dan, I can I can relate to a lot of that. It they began to I began to see the the relationship of the beauty of the church and the mission of the church in the world, and a lot was began to to get reoriented. We we, we moved to uh, Santa Cruz, California, to plant a church out there. And really, um, pragmatically, one of the big impulses for me becoming Anglican even then was to reach uh, such a post-Christian context like Santa Cruz um, that was just really strange. It's just a different place, um, and I love it. Uh, we we needed um, better tools. We needed better ways of being Christians in the world that we could call people into. Um, and Anglicanism provided this really grounded, rooted, ancient um a kind of way of inviting people into the Christian life that didn't have like a, a faddish kind of tinge to it. You know, it wasn't a marketing approach. It was this almost irrelevant, out of date, seemingly ancient way of being a Christian that had its own, because of that, this really beautiful invitation and aesthetic to it. So it was, uh, that was kind of part of, that's always been part of our church planting ministry and life and our approach to uh, the neighborhood. Now I'm in Austin, uh, planting another church out here, Resurrection South Austin. And, uh, Man, I I am I I am tired. I love church planting, but I'm tired. I'm beat. I don't know if I got another one in me. I hope not. God willing, <laughs> who knows? But I want to help other people, and that's what that's why Dan and I are doing what we're doing. Is we're getting old, you know. We've got kids, and we've been beat up enough uh, in the life of church planting. But we want to help other people plant churches, you know. You know, being a being a church planter is a little bit like being a blues singer. Right. I mean, everybody thinks what you're doing is incredible, but sometimes your tune, what you're actually saying is just this, you know, my wife left me, my dog died, you know, yeah. the whole, you know, singing the blues, baby. And when you said that, I don't know if I got another one in me. That is the church planner blues, man. It is, you know, you, oh, yeah. you, you listen to Paul and here's the thing. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I cut my experience of Anglicanism short, but. You know, my dad was, uh, he was an Anglican priest before he died. Now it was Roman Anglican. I know, I know you got all different, you know, types, but he was, uh, he, he had a radical conversion experience at the, uh, end of his life. I think eight years before hmm. he died, he was laying in a drunken stupor in his apartment and, uh, he had made a lot of, um, very, stupid, very evil choices in his life. And, uh, <laughs> and consequences were coming and, and he had been an alcoholic parents of, of, of alcoholics and he was in Hollywood and he, he literally just looked up at a crucifix hanging on the wall and said, Hey, you know, uh, maybe you can help me. I've tried everything else. And when my father, uh, found out about my faith, he was very standoffish and, but he became a transformed man and gave hmm. the last eight years of his life ministering in Hollywood to the Filipino community. 
as an Anglican priest. And I'm telling you, that wow. dude, I would never take my wife to go meet my dad because I was afraid he would hit on her. <laughs> He's a bit of a, <laughs> a, a ladies' man. Yikes. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so when, uh, when I finally took her, the first, uh, I, I took my wife to go meet my dad when I got a, a card in the mail that said he was getting ordained as a deacon. This was before he became a priest. And, oh. uh, and, and, and I warned my, my, my wife. I said, Hey, you know, he, he was an actor. Um, you know, don't, don't be fooled. This could be, I, I don't know what role he's playing. And, uh, here I was, you know, it was a little bit like, uh, in, in the Bible where Paul gets converted. No, nobody believes it's real. And, uh, <laughs> so anyways, he, he ended up, man, he was so different. That day I sat and looked. My dad was always, very proud, had a deep, booming voice, always in command of a room. And suddenly he, uh, he was this broken man, but humble and loving. My wife fell in love with my dad, loved mm -hmm. my dad so much and came in out of that meeting going, Peyton, your dad's a Christian. I don't know what's wrong with you, but that man, <laughs> you know, she comes out and I, and I'm still, I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, I can't believe it. I can't believe my dad got saved. And, uh, yeah. but anyways, all, all I'm saying is, um, and that's good again, you know, um, a warm place in my heart for what I've seen out of Anglicanism. When I was in the UK, what was so cool about Anglicans, it's probably different here, but I want to connect on what you talked about that, that route to ancientness that is not faddish. And I want to talk about that. But one of the things that the Anglicans really had in the UK was here, you see this punk like me. And I, there were just certain parts of British society that I could not penetrate, no matter how hard I tried. But every single person in the UK at some time or another was in, a, in, in an Anglican church, you know, either getting married, getting buried, um, you know, and, and they, they had this respectability. It was in the UK that I began to understand the collar. And even some mm -hmm. of my, my friends here in America that might be, you know, non-denominate, they understand that the collar opens doors in, in ways that almost nothing else can. And so, you know, c coming back to that, you mentioned, uh, uh, that, you know, that Anglicanism has a uniqueness here in America. And I see that with this postmodern, post-Christian generation. Tell us about what Anglican offers to the guy in Santa Cruz or Austin, you know, the, the guy, Covered with tattoos, he works. He works in a motorcycle shop, and he he and his family this Christmas say we're going to go to a church. They walk into an Anglican church plant. What are they going to find there that's different than say if they go to the non-denominational mega church down the street? Mm. Well, I hope that, um, and Dan, I, I hope you chime in too because I'm sure you have some good stuff. I hope that in all of the things that are different, they do they don't run into a different gospel message. And in fact, I hope that it's, um, I mean, while we can talk about distinctives, I think it's, it's just worth saying like, like we Anglicans and the tribe we run with are really faithful evangelical Catholics, you know? So we do take on so much that is similar and our heart is for the gospel, um, and for Jesus being known and, and people knowing him and, but coming into, um, an Anglican church, I think it would be kind of a, I mean, I remember taking a family member into the, uh, a beautiful Anglican church in San Francisco once. And, and they walked in and said, Oh my God. And 
I said, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this um, otherworldly beauty that just confronts and jars. And it's actually, for many, and for me, it was um, disorienting even at first. But there was something about it that I just couldn't kind of look away from. And uh, I found, even in just not even understanding, but seeing that the aesthetic, just seeing it from afar, um, it was so different. And so not like it, it like almost refused to cooperate in the status quo of cultural trends and what is like, it's not trying to be cool. In fact, speaking of the caller, someone saw me in a caller and said, man, it's like you guys aren't even trying to be cool. And that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, there's something about cool. Anglicans that, are, you know, we, we realize we're not cool. And I don't think that, um, I hope we're not trying to be cool. That's just really not the point. Um, I, but when I you walk think- into a service. I, I think, to be honest, that people are, are sick of the pastor being cool. I think when the chips are down and you, you've got a soul crisis, you don't need a guy who's cool. You don't need a guy in skinny jeans with designer clothes and funny jokes. You need, you need depth. Mm. Yeah. And I would say even you need Jesus. Uh, and it's so relieving for us to man, if I, I could take you guys through a tour of the liturgy that we do at our church or an explanation of the sacraments, the whole thing, just to get to the point is it all points to Jesus. Um, and if it doesn't, then you kind of need to like revise it or get it out of the way. The whole idea is to give people Jesus. And it's so relieving as a priest to not come to a hospital room or some other home in crisis and only have words of comfort, though that's good, but to also be able to provide um, the real presence of Christ, even in administering sacraments or in helping people remember their baptism. There's something really concrete that um, reaches the body as well as the soul in the ministry of the Gospels. And in fact, I think one of the old uh, titles for priests was a cure of souls, not because they do, but because they get to participate in the ministry that Jesus has on these people of, of curing their souls, um, not just with some sort of cognitive interaction, you know, some sort of thought process, but actual concrete material interaction with the presence of Christ, which I think is pretty, pretty awesome and amazing. What would you, what would you add to that, Dan? Well, yeah, you know, I'd say that this, the, the question is hard to answer sometimes. Well, it's complicated to answer sometimes, because if you say, what will you experience in an Anglican church plant? There's a lot of diversity within Anglicanism that some, some Anglican churches are very high church Anglican churches. I mean, with, with incense and chasubles and lots of vestments and things like that. And some are, (laughs) that's a little more, a little more Sean's bent um, that, uh, and some are, are a lot more lower church. Uh, And so they might not wear vestments at all. They might not wear the the robes and things at all. Um, But, uh, and and have a, and have a different style of, of music and of, and their approach to liturgy is different. And so there's a lot of diversity even within Anglicanism. I think though, at what, for me, one of the things that is that is beautiful about being a part of this tradition really is trying to portray um, that that we're a part of something 
greater than ourselves, a greater tradition, and not not just redemptive history, which which is of course at the, at the heart of this of God God saving His people and bringing His people back to Himself, but it's also about the great tradition of the people who have been a part of redemptive history, and so so the the tools that they've used, the words that they've said, the actions that they have been a part of, the uh, the so that we can recognize that we're not even though we're sort of in an entrepreneurial innovative ministry and church planting we're not the first christians that have ever lived and so we don't have to actually recreate everything we we just we have to represent the the gospel and the great tradition that we're a part of in in this contemporary time and and there's so there's so many uh, gifts that are a part of that tradition that 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 I see now in a lot of non-liturgical uh, churches and, and traditions where they're starting to try to recognize the need for these things and wanting to create them of whether they're saying, hey, you know, we've come up with this reading plan for the scripture um, that that helps you know what you're going to read every Sunday. Um, and we have this, we want to market this to you. And we're going, that that's actually a electionary. Um, we've 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 had that for we've had that for a long time. There's just um or or even just creating a sense of we want to create a sense of 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 experience and beauty in the worship service so that people will be brought into that. Say, like, well, yeah, that's actually that aesthetic aspect and that and that beauty matters and that that experience matters. It's actually been a part of the great tradition from the beginning. Um, and that that uh, that we want to just live into that. So I think so I think it 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 really is an amazing thing to be a church planter in this tradition because you you can be innovative and creative but you don't have to reinvent the wheel on everything you really it's kind of a revitalization of something that's that's that is constant and ancient and still very applicable to today yeah that's really good man and and it's funny because the way i got in touch with with you guys um was i had heard your podcast and then i was at a a conference and I met a uh, an Anglican minister. He had a he had a collar on, and I remember just saying to him, "Well, you you don't you don't really fit in here, do you?" And you know, we, <laughs> we started laughing, you know. And and he goes, you know, we got to talking, and I mentioned you too. I said, "Hey, you know, I've been looking to to interview the guys from Always Forward," and uh, we chat. He goes, "I know them," and he said, "You know, I I I uh, he goes, I came to a conference like this, and I was getting ready to church plant." And he goes, and it was just overwhelming, all the lights and the, you know, the big band concert and the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the hoopla. And he goes, I just thought, I can't do this. I, I just can't do this. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and I started looking at something that, you know, for him, he knew his generation and he's like, you know, my generation of, of young families, um, they're very cynical. And when they see something with that kind of root and tradition, which is opposite of where people have been like in previous decades, but this generation right now is kind of going, look, we've, we've had everything thrown at us. You know, we're in a, in an age where, you know, it's like the internet, you can't believe anything, but here's this faith that's been here and it's been like a rock. And like you said, people don't care if it's cool. Because it's real. And I think I can trust this. And and that's mm. really what we're coming to is, and, you know, they've seen all the scandals. They've not saying that every, you know, denomination and every, you know, uh, area of the body of Christ has its fair share of scandals. But there is something that's very much appealing 
to this generation that's saying what I'm seeing is not a cult of personality or an idol built to self, you know, out of, out of concrete, a church that's about a man. Um, that's not Jesus. It's about the guy speaking. I'm seeing something where, like you said, what we're actually seeing is something invisible. Um, you know, through, mm-hmm. even if I come into a building, it's, it's, my soul is seeing. I, I just think people are connecting with that ancientness. Can can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. personally, it's like really good for my soul uh, being an Anglican. Um, I'm the kind of guy who, when given the space, I'm just that kind of entrepreneurial guy, you know, when given the space, I'm going to go for it. Um, I love to be creative. And what's really good for my soul isn't always being able to start from the ground up, but in fact, submitting to something bigger than myself and obeying much wiser, more mature Christian people. And so for me, kind of the, the, the gift of Anglicanism that I'm, that I'm have realized over the years is taking on a rule of life, kind of a monastic rule of, of rhythms of prayer, um, ways of using my body that say things that sometimes I don't want to say, or I don't remember I need to say, like sometimes the cross comes down the aisle and you'll see folks in the church bowing. And even me, the, the celebrant leading the, the liturgy, I'll bow um, when the cross comes by, like the gospel reading or something. And I, I think to myself as I'm bowing, yes, Jesus, you are in charge. Um, I need to submit to you. I'm not the most important person here. You are. And that that kind of that's something that's like kind of a tacit knowledge that's only really felt in the body. You can say it, but it's different to do it. So it's just little things like that um, have formed me as a Christian in ways that I just really couldn't help myself. And it's, you know, it's so surprising. It's cool to watch your kids go through it. I have five little kids and they will say the most interesting things um, that sometimes it's quoting verbatim out of the liturgy from a creed or a prayer. Um, and other times they're using your, their bodies, even in play, in, with the sign of the cross, but then it's always associated with some sort of realization of what that means and what that means, uh, like the implications of what that means. Um, so making the sign of the cross on them, for instance, on themselves, they'll realize like, oh, I belong to Jesus. Like what he's done on the cross, that's for me. And so even watching kids go through it, there's something really subversive to the idea that you have to have some sort of intellectual assent to be saved fully. Um, but actually watching kids and their wonder, um, flourish in this liturgical sacramental rule of life kind of way of being a Christian is as a dad, man, it's like a total gift. And I love it. Yeah. I, I think, I think one of the dangers that's important to, to recognize as we talk about this too, is that I, cause I think you're right, Peyton, there, there really is a draw towards the ancient, towards something that is, that is constant, something that has been around a long time and not, not something that is just, there's innovation everywhere. And perhaps we need a little less innovation and more just faithfulness. And, um, uh, but one of the dangers as well is, is to recognize that what we're talking about is not just an aesthetic. Right. It's not that that sometimes what I've seen as people have started to gain interest in this is that they want a lot of the the forms. They want to start lighting candles. They want to start having communion every week. They want to start. There's some of the 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 physical forms of this that they want to adopt without truly understanding why those things are done. Uh, and so it becomes it becomes uh, it becomes faddish in 
because of how it's used rather than as we're using these things in a particular way as tools to be able to point to something greater with a lot of substance. It becomes just another sort of cool way of doing church because we're doing it in an ancient way. Um, and, uh, and that's not, that's not healthy either. All of, yeah. all of the liturgy is meant to make disciples. All of the, all of the symbols is all, are all meant to point to God and to teach lessons. It's all about these things used in a faithful way, pointing to the word, pointing to the scripture, pointing to the gospel, pointing to Jesus. And if they're kind of done out of context, then it just, mm. it is, it's sort of the next kind of vintage fad, um, which is going to pass away as well. And that's not what we want to see happen. That's yeah, such a good absolutely. point. I, and I totally dig that because, you know, for me, I came to faith at a Calvary chapel. It was a guy from a Calvary chapel who shared the gospel with me, but uh, he had had a car and I, I didn't. And then he moved almost immediately. And so the Episcopalian church was a church I could get to. And mm-hmm. as a brand new believer, I found huge amounts of beauty in a, in talk about a liturgy it was a sung liturgy <laughs> yeah and and so i mean it was it was hardcore and um you know it, it was a uh you know i i still i still could memorize it mm-hmm. uh, or not memor- uh, recite it you know i could do the mm-hmm. whole i could sing the whole eucharist all of that right it's still in me and so when i go back to that all of those feelings of when Jesus was new and a, mm-hmm. a very, you know, the, those early days, those first love days are connected to, to, to that for me. And so, you know, um, it's interesting because as I hear you guys talk, um, experientially, I connect and I very much can see how a new convert, you know, like the guy I described uh, off the street who comes in with his family, I can see how, like, like you've been pointing to this whole time, it's Jesus. That's what, mm-hmm. and this is, this is one form, one way of worshiping him. And there are many more distinctives and I'm going to have you guys for more, uh, you know, at least, uh, I think I'm going to talk to one of you, uh, more about missional sacraments, which is something that we didn't even touch on, but, but this will be continued. But what we always do at the end of our show, and I know we've just barely uh, scratched the surface here, but if you guys want to hear more uh, about what these guys have to say, again, Always Forward is the name of their podcast. Um, highly recommend it. And then uh, always-forward.com is our website. It is a good looking website, guys. I got to say, well done on that. Thanks. Sean hey, had thanks, a lot to man. do with that. <laughs> You're a good man to know, Sean. And uh, I don't know about that. And and what we always do is we end every show by uh, making you fight somebody. So since I got two of you on here, mm. um, I'm going to start. Let's see. I'm looking at you both. I'm going to give Dan. I'm going to give you the most famous Anglican, I think, outside of C.S. Lewis, who probably lived uh, and that is John Wesley, because many people don't realize John Wesley died in Anglican in Oregon mm-hmm. and never left the Anglican church. And so if you're, if you're listening today and you want to know the missional heart, I don't think we've had in church history anybody quite like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, John Wesley as much like the apostle Paul as, as Wesley was. And his followers begged him at times, please form our own denomination. And I just read two biographies on Wesley this year and he refused. It came up every annual meeting 
And every meeting he shot it down and was like, nope, that's not happening. So, uh, you know, if you're listening today and you're like, hey, you know, I, I'm really thinking that there's some things here. Check it out and uh, check these guys out. Get in touch. And, uh, you know, uh, by all means, please follow in the footsteps of John Wesley. So, Dan, I'm going to make you here's the here's the question. And I hate to do this to you, but if you were to get into a physical fist fight with John Wesley, who would win? And you could pick any age of Wesley. Right. Well, uh, I'm actually working on my doctor of ministry degree at Asbury, um, which is a Wesleyan seminary. Um, and so there's a there's a life size statue of John Wesley out in the courtyard there, which I've gotten my picture taken next to. And uh, I, I'm not a small or diminutive man. I'm um, well over six feet and, you know, well over 280. Uh, and so I'm just going to say, I think I could take Wesley on a number of different <laughs> levels, um, except that his, he also has his brother, Charles, who's always around too. And so if it went two on one, I might, I might have some difficulty there, but just John Wesley, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that I could take him. Yeah. He <laughs> fights dirty. I've read the letters between Wesley and Whitfield. He fights dirty. He won't he does fight that. Yeah. yeah. And That's right. uh, you're exactly right. Yeah, it, but I, I got to say, though, I wonder, like, I'm going to give you some pushback on this because, uh, you know, that dude was tough. He was still riding. They only got him like a a, a coach during, I think, when he was in his 70s. I, I think that's right. He was tough. He was riding like 100 miles a day. So I don't know, man. He might be like one of those wise and old kung fu warriors at like 90 that would kick all, take all three of us on. Well, I would would just I would just tell him that as we entered into it, that I would depend upon the sovereignty of God to determine the outcome Um, and uh, and and just (laughs) and it would distract him. Um, And then uh, then I could take it down. All right. All right. My my money's still on Wesley. And that's at any age (laughs) that he would take all three of us on. All right. Hey, Sean. But but I dig the smack talk. That's what this is all about. Sean, (laughs) I'm going to be kinder to you. You're you, you seem like you're a little bit of lighter build than Dan. And uh, I'm going to pit you against another famous Anglican, uh, Mr. George Whitfield. Oh, man. In the pulpit or out of the pulpit? <sighs> oh, well. <you> know. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's him. a good point, because both of these guys had people actually pee on them while they were preaching. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've had hard things happen to me in the pulpit, but no one's ever peed on me. So Not that. Let's, yeah. let's take this out of the pulpit. Okay. Well, if if Wesley is some sort of reference point and Dan can take Wesley and I know I can take Dan, then I'm going to say <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say I, I would lose that. I would lose that and and he but he would beat up all of us as well. Maybe they would both give us a good whooping. I think they would. Any from anybody from that era just has some like weathered hands and can just lay a whooping on us. I'm I pretty think sure. So. Yeah, they were riding yeah, horses all fair. day. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think you're right. <laughs> Although I was kind of I was kind of rooting for you against Whitfield. I I don't know that he was as tough as Wesley, but but I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, they've got that that hidden old man strength, you know, from that time. And they would I, tell yeah. us off. They'd be like, "Hey, you guys, you call yourselves Good. ministers? Come on." Mm. Come on, you know, they, you know, they yeah. lecture us as well. Not only would they beat yeah. us up, but they'd gloat over us and probably humble us emotionally, mentally, and scar us. It's like, that's right. totally you, right. You, you definitely have to punch them in the mouth first because if they start in with their, their oratory, it, it would just, they would just run. They'd be like Saruman in some sort of golden voice. You know, it'd be really, it'd go really badly. Then there would be the endless newspaper articles they'd write about us for years, the pamphlets <laughs> they would circulate. I mean, 
It would yeah. be like full on propaganda, psychological warfare for the rest of our life. So it would just be yeah. like, you see him coming, run, right? I mean, that's probably <laughs> the best, you know. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm well, with you. Hey, my guest today have been Dan Elger and, or not, sorry, I can't speak, right? Uh, Dan Alger, it's it's from Fighting Wesley and Whitfield. I'm, I'm a little roughed up here. <laughs> and Sean McCain of always-forward.com, Anglican Ministers again. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Thanks, it's been brother. a good time. Thanks, Peyton. Oh, All right, Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.